It is because we know our Redeemer lives that we know he hears our prayers. And as we offer our prayers today, if you would like to offer your prayers at the altar rail, sometimes the, uh, the act of, of bowing, of kneeling, uh, expresses what's in our hearts most clearly. If you'd like to use the altar rail to offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, it is really beyond our ability to fully understand that our Redeemer lives. It is your great miracle and power that has made this true. And we come today in adoration and worship because you have conquered death. Because our greatest enemy is defeated. And we worship you today. Father, we pray for this world in which we live. A world that needs to know that our Redeemer lives. A world that is mired in in violence and hatred and despair. A world mired in greed self-centeredness, pain. And we ask that your spirit would clearly communicate your grace. We pray for peace in our world. We ask that you would hold back the forces and the systems of evil. And we pray that every person who is working for good and justice would be encouraged. Father, we pray this especially for the leaders of the nations of the world, beginning with our nation and all the other nations that we represent today. Father, sometimes it seems impossible, but we're praying for you to do the miraculous. Father, we pray for your church in the world. We pray for John and Carolyn Miller. Thank you for their years of service, particularly in working with Scripture translation. We ask that you will continue to give them strength for the tasks before them, that you will anoint their ministry, and that more and more people would come to know you because more and more people can read your word in their own language. We pray your blessing on them. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who face great persecution for their faith. We think of the people in Somalia. It's hard for us to really grasp what it's like to live with the daily threat of various persecutions. But our brothers and sisters in this country know it all too well. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would give them courage in the midst of great trial. Help them to know our love and our support and our prayers. And Father, we pray 
that as they, as they stand in the spirit of Christ, that you would use their witness to bring a revolution to this nation. A revolution of love, of grace, of your spirit. Father, we pray for our church. We thank you for all the ways in which you are at work in this place. We ask that you would heal our diseases, comfort our grieving souls, restore our relationships that are broken. Father, make us people who are known as those who forgive one another and who care for one another. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to unite us in your spirit, that we would be filled with your truth and our hearts with your love and our souls with your grace. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers today. Thank you that we pray through the risen Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The second scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord.
Be seated. Last week, we celebrated Easter Sunday, and it was a glorious day. It always is. In the church calendar, it is the high day. As we celebrate, he who is dead is alive. And in fact, it is such an, an important day in the church that uh, the early church fathers said every Sunday should be a mini Easter celebration. Every Sunday we come together, whatever season we happen to be in of the church year, we celebrate the resurrection. Because the resurrection is what gives meaning to the incarnation and to the crucifixion. And it gives meaning to the one who is to come. And beyond even that every Sunday should be a mini celebration of Easter, Easter is not just a day, it is a season. Fifty days we celebrate Easter. Fifty days we remember again and again and again that the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. And when I think about the Easter celebration, I think about resurrection, my mind naturally gravitates toward heaven. It's eternal life. And as you think about heaven, we all probably come to the discussion about heaven from a variety of perspectives. We live in a, in a world that is pretty interested in heaven. We're interested in what happens after people die. It, it, not just Christians. Virtually every faith has something to say about what happens after we die. And people get very emotional about it. Even if the emotion is simply to say, I don't believe it's true. But there is something in us that wants to know what happens, what's next. We see it in our culture in this country all the time. We see it in media. You know, years ago, television show Highway to Heaven, and probably the more modern version of that is Touched by an Angel. Mitch Albom's book and subsequently a movie, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, bestseller. Now in the theaters is the story Heaven is for Real, which is based on a Wesleyan pastor and his little boy's near-death experience and seeing things in heaven that, quite frankly, when I read the book, you can't explain it any other way than he had to see those things. And people are enamored with it. You know, we, we're interested in it because we know so little. Now, people do have varying opinions about what heaven will be like. For some people, you know, you think about clouds and angels. I think for some people, probably their view of heaven may resemble the song that Dorothy sings in The Wizard of Oz. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. You know, it's sort of that wishful, I hope maybe it might be nice kind of thing, Right? And we have a tendency to shape heaven into our image. When we think about heaven, it looks an awful lot like us. Which is what makes John's revelation so fascinating and so inspiring and so necessary because he helps to put some things into perspective. 
earlier this year, we were in Epiphany, we were talking about different doors in the Bible, and we talked about uh, in Genesis, the door that, is, that God says to, to Cain as he's about to take Abel's life, sin is crouching at your door. And then Jesus talks about the narrow door. And Paul talks about the open door to ministry. And just as there are door, there's a door and doors at the beginning of the scriptures, we find now another door at the end. John is, says that he is in the spirit and the Isle of Patmos. He's been exiled. He's in prayer. He, he's worshiping. And he has this experience of the spirit. And he has a vision of Jesus who speaks to him in the first chapter. And the second and third chapters are letters to uh, local churches that he is connected to. And then we come to the fourth chapter and he says, I looked and there before me was an open door. And I looked through the door and to paraphrase, he says, I saw things I don't even know how to describe. Isn't it fascinating when you read through Revelation how many times he says, well, it kind of looked like. It, it seemed like. It resembled. You know, I've, I've thought about that a lot because you think of John living in the first century trying to describe things that are common to us. I mean, how would John describe even things like a telephone? How would John describe an automobile? How would John describe electric, electric lights? How would he, much less, how would he describe tanks and fighter jets? How would he describe it other than, well, it sort of looks like. All he can do is put it into, into the context of his world and try to communicate it. And John tells us that this vision, he talks about precious stones. Uh, he talks about lighting, lightning and thunder and, and rainbows. He talks about all of these things. And then he talks about a throne. He, 46 times in this revelation, John says, talks about throne, a throne. And he tells us that seated on the throne is the king. God Almighty. He is seated on the throne. And around the throne are 24 other thrones. And on those thrones are elders. And I would suspect that that means, based on John's interpretation, these are people who you would consider the hall of fame of God's people. These are the people through the centuries that you would look at and say, wow, we, are, we want to model our lives after them. And they're wearing crowns. They've been rewarded. And you would think they would sit there around the throne going, this is pretty awesome. But John tells us that that's not what they do. He says all of the, the elders around the throne can't fall on their faces fast enough and throw their crowns down quick enough before God Almighty. And there's a lot of things in the book of Revelation that we don't understand. There's a lot here that we look at and people have theories that go all over the place. But the one thing that is clear is that there is an explosion of worship. And if you want to put 
the book of Revelation into a word, it's worship. If you want to describe heaven in a word, it's worship. Every being in heaven is concerned about worship. And, and John says that the one who sits on the throne has a scroll in his hand. And there again, theories about what the scroll represents. I think that the scroll represents the consummation of all of God's plans and purposes for everything he has made. Everything he is going to do. And that, that scroll, when it is opened, it will bring judgment and it will bring reward. It will bring death and it will bring life. It will be the fulfillment of all of God's mega plan for everything. That scroll will be open and the purposes of God will be fulfilled. We see bits and pieces of God's purpose now. We get glimpses of his purpose now. When the scroll is opened, we'll get it all. And the fulfillment of everything God has planned will be seen. It will take place. And for those who believe, it will be the most awesome thing in the world. And John says, I heard people all over, all around me saying, who can open the scroll? Who can open the scroll? Who can open the scroll? And no one could open the scroll. And John is so emotional about it, he begins to weep. If no one can open the scroll, then the purposes of God's, of God's kingdom are thwarted. If the scroll, if the seals can't be broken and the scroll opened, then we will never know the fulfillment of all that God has planned. He somehow recognizes that. And in his emotion and weeping and passion, in my mind, I, ha I have an image of an elder coming and tapping him on the shoulder and saying, it's okay. None of these people can open the scroll, but there is one who can. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he can open the scroll. And what's fascinating to me is that when John looks, he looks to see the lion coming to open the scroll. He doesn't see a lion at all. He sees a lamb who was slain. It's not, it's not Christ who can come and devour those who oppose him that saves us. It is Christ who comes and allows himself to be devoured that saves us. It is not Christ exerting his divine power and crushing his enemies with it. It is Christ coming and humbling himself and going to the cross that saves us. And the lamb comes and opens the scroll and everything is set in motion. And what is the response of every being that John sees on earth and under the earth, in the sea and under the sea, in the heavens, their response is worship. Worshiping the one who was slain so that God's purposes would be fulfilled. We come to this table
to worship. Sometimes we, we, we think of this sacrament as being about us. It's about Christ. It's about the grace of God in Christ reaching out to us. It's about the cross. It's about the love of God offered to us. And it's not just about what Christ has done. It is about what Christ has promised to do. This table does not just look back. It looks forward. It looks forward to the consummation of the kingdom of God when we will experience the fullness of God's justice and love and truth and grace. And we come to this table to worship. Worship is about being all absorbed about something. If we worship money, then every moment of life is absorbed with money. Our conversations are about money. Our thoughts are about money. Our dreams are about money. Our relationships are rooted in how we can get more money. If we worship money, eventually everything we do comes back to money. If we worship Christ, everything's about Christ. Our relationships are about Christ. Our thoughts are about Christ. Our dreams are about Christ. Our passion is about Christ. That's what it means to worship. That's what we see in heaven. And that's why what we see in heaven is simply the reflection of what we believe, what is our passion here on earth. Sometimes I think a lot of people believe that when we get to heaven, everything in us will just automatically change. But what would make us think that we will have passion for Christ in heaven if we don't have passion for Christ now? What, what would make us think that we, we will want to spend all of eternity worshiping Christ if we don't want to worship Christ now? That's the very premise of Lewis's book, Great Divorce. As he talks about this, you know, it's imaginary busload of people from hell that are taken to heaven and are shown all around the heavenly realm and are then invited to stay if they want to. Nobody wants to. Because their hearts are turned not toward worshiping Christ, but toward worshiping themselves. They have spent their whole existence preparing themselves not for heaven, but for hell. Every passion they have is the passion of hell, not of heaven. In fact, some of them say staying in heaven makes them ill. There is nothing there that they want because they don't want to surrender to Christ. They don't want to give their life to Christ. They don't want to, their passion to be Christ. It's about self. And God says, your will be done. It matters what our passions are now. 
It matters eternally. It makes a difference. And I find it fascinating that when John reveals this image of heaven, he breaks down the mindset that we typically have about what heaven will look like. I think most of us, when we, when we imagine heaven, and probably there's not a lot of, it's hard for us not to think this way, but for most of us, when we imagine heaven, everyone in heaven sort of looks like us, right? I mean, they're our nationality. They think the way we think. I mean, that's what heaven is, right? Everybody thinks like me. But then we get this image from John here in chapter 5, and he talks about how Christ came and he was slain for every people, tribe, nation, tongue. And you get to chapter 7, and John says not only did Christ die for, those, for the, this, the whole world, but when he gets to chapter 7, he actually sees the whole world there. He says, I looked and I saw people from every language, tribe, nation, race, And it intrigues me that John is able to see the difference. He looks at this, all the people there, and he can tell they speak a different language. They're from they're from different races. They're different nationalities, even different tribes within different nations. He can tell the difference, and it shatters this mindset that we have about heaven being. Us. I am convinced that if God created us with such diversity now, why would he change that for eternity? The difference is our diversity now tends to separate us. Our, our, our differences now tend to make us go opposite directions and fight with each other and argue with each other. As a professor of mine said in college, the, if you were to choose a motto for the church through the centuries, it probably would be divide and conquer. Unfortunately, it's probably true. In heaven, that will not be the case. We'll look at each other differently. We'll see our differences in a whole new way. It, it, it's sort of like the difference between a solo and a choir. Solos are wonderful. Solos are awesome. But our, our ears and our spirits long for the harmony of a choir. And there's something about the harmonies that stir our souls. Something about the harmonies make the hair on the back of our neck stand up. But you only have harmonies if people are singing different parts. There is no harmony if everyone sings the same thing. Or or think of it like a mosaic. We can be a little piece, and it's a little piece. But you put it in the context of a mosaic, and it takes on beautiful characteristics. Totally transformed into an image of something that we believe and that inspires us. And I'm convinced that this is the image of heaven. That we will come together. And the reason we come together and the means of coming together, what makes the difference is our focus. Our focus is Christ. 
We're no longer thinking about how can I get ahead. We're no longer thinking how can I convince that person to think the way I do. We're no longer thinking why would anyone see it that way. All of our attention is united around worshiping Christ. And it changes everything. And if that is our heavenly image, then obviously it is God's passion and desire for us to work toward that even now. That's why I love when we take communion by intention, as we're going to do this morning. We all come to the front and we tear off bread from the same loaf and we, and we dip it into the same cup and we see this unity and we see all of our diversity, all the ways that we're different and we think differently and we, we view things differently, but we're uniting ourselves in Christ. And maybe you're asking yourself, why is God so enamored with worship? I mean, What's the deal? Is God so insecure that he needs us to stroke his ego? Is there something within God that isn't quite fulfilled that only we can bring to him? That he's not quite fully God without us helping him? No. God is completely self-sufficient. But he knows that worship does something for us. When we're passionate about worship, it means that we surrender ourselves. We open our hearts. We're thinking about him. And when we are passionate about him and when we open our hearts and when we're thinking about him, we can experience the depths of his love and grace and truth and mercy in ways that we simply cannot without worship. God doesn't need our worship. We need our worship. We need that passion, that fire in us that says, Christ, I want you and you alone. And when we live that way now, the fascinating thing is that we begin to experience more and more glimpses of heaven. we begin to see more and more of what Paul says, that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and we've not comprehended what God has in store for those who love him. When our passion is worshiping Christ, we get more and more experiences and glimpses into God's grace and his love, and his plans for us. So my question for us this morning is about our worship. What's the passion of our hearts? What's the desire in our spirits? We're not going to be perfect. We all are going to struggle. We're going to wrestle. But deep down inside... What do we really want? Who do we really want at the center of who we are? 
Gracious Father, we thank you for this revelation to John. There's so much that we don't understand, so much that really doesn't make sense to us, but it's clear the call to worship. So, Father, whatever this morning might be in the way, whatever might be closing off our passion for you, give us grace to let it go. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. We pray your blessing upon these elements, that they will be food for our souls, that they will be grace in our hearts, that they will stir anew in us a passion of worship for Christ. Pour out your spirit, Father, on the bread and the cup. And as we eat and drink, may we be more and more bonded together in your grace. We ask this through Jesus. Amen.